My name's Tamsin Westhorpe and welcome to Fresh From The Pod. Now, I'm going to give a slightly longer introduction than I normally do because I'm just so excited about my next guest. It's none other than royal and celebrity florist Simon Lysett. Now, most of you will have seen Simon appearing on television for Chelsea, Breakfast Telly, and recently on The Big Flower Fight for Netflix as a judge. Simon is going to share with me his experiences of decorating wonderful venues for royal weddings, celebrity weddings, conversations he's had with the Queen. Although that seems all rather highfalutin, the reason why I wanted Simon to be a guest is because during the lockdown, he's been sharing Instagram lives from his garden and he has kept it so real. He has embraced us all, included us all and shared his passion for horticulture in the warmest and most wonderfulest way. So join me for this gorgeously gooey conversation. Yeah, I just know you're going to enjoy it. So Simon, how lovely of you to join me on Fresh From The Pod. And although our listeners can't see, you look incredible. You've got this wonderful tropical shirt on this morning and your clothing is quite a large part of your life, isn't it? Yeah, I get great pleasure from what I wear. Yes, I absolutely love dressing up. I don't do it for anybody other than for me. And if anybody else enjoys it, that's lovely too. Does it give you a confidence, do you think? Yeah, I think it does. I think we're talking during lockdown and actually it's been quite funny as each day I've been doing an Insta TV live, I've actually gone and made an effort. I've waxed my moustache, I've combed my hair, I've changed out of my gardening clothes or what I was sitting at my desk and put something on that looks a bit more like the Simon that people might have seen on the telly, just because it's slightly... It gets me into the zone and it helps me to regroup and think, okay, we'll just go and and be you for a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm completely the reverse to you. I've been wearing gardening clothes and it does it does eventually pull you down you think I need to dress up it it is you're, you're very right but your Instagram has kept a lot of us company during the lockdown um what was your sort of thinking at the beginning did you imagine that so many people would be listening to you every day and um you know getting so much from it No, I didn't. And actually, I think it's a terrible vanity exercise that I embarked on because actually I thought, who on earth is going to want to listen to me rambling on? But I was in my garden. I had just come back from Los Angeles. I was in my garden and the sun was shining. The birds were singing. It was the very first morning of lockdown. And I was in my dressing gown with a cup of tea and it was beautiful and I could hear the birds, no planes. I live in South London, so normally it's quite, there's a lot of urban noise and there was silence and birds and the sun was on my face and I thought, this is beautiful out here. And then I thought, gosh, there must be loads and loads of people that don't actually have an outdoor space. Imagine in the mornings. And I remember when I, my first flat, I had no outdoor space. I only had two windows. Three of the rooms had no, they were internal with no windows. Can you imagine being like that for months on end? And this was at the start of lockdown when we didn't know what we were heading into. So I thought, oh, I wonder if there's a way I can share this. So that was really the stem of it. And then it evolved into pootling around in the garden. What am I doing? It becomes a really lovely conversation with a group of mates. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's what lockdown has brought. It's brought us all closer together and it makes people realise, you know, although, you know, I'm in awe of what you do, you're just a normal person with a passion for horticulture and, you know, very approachable. So I think it breaks those barriers down, doesn't it? Well, that was I was chatting with Anne-Marie Powell yesterday, the great garden designer who I have met and worked alongside and laughed a lot with at Chelsea Flower Shows in the past. And I'm talking to you as what on the what would have been the Friday of Chelsea Week. And we reminisced yesterday about the fact that we would normally be doing really grand and gorgeous things. But actually what has been lovely has been reconnecting with what we are and what our gardens are. My house isn't my client's house. My, I'm not a garden designer, I'm a florist. And I get to work all over the world in amazing places. But actually... I quite like growing myself a bunch of cornflowers, a wigwam of sweet peas. I have a little raised bed that gets me some leafy salads. And the joy and satisfaction I get from that is truly me. And it's not glamorous party stuff. It's not Simon on the telly waving flowers about and being camp. That is just me in the garden. And it has been really a great privilege to share that with people and for them to engage with it. Yeah. But how have you, I mean, obviously you have a business, you have staff, you have a premises. Are you sort of underneath all this, if frantic and thinking, what's life going to be like the other side? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, some days you go and it's, it's almost as I wax the tash, I put the smile on with it because gardening is very contemplative. And I think spending time in the garden on my own helps me. My husband can tell if I've had an email that I'm worried or unhappy about because I'll go out into the garden for an hour or two. And it helps me just think things through. It helps me to process them in quite a calm manner, whereas I might just sit at my desk and make a knee-jerk reaction. And I have... and for a lot of the time doing the insta lives filming some flowers for various projects that i've been putting onto social media at the moment i feel slightly like nero fiddling whilst rome burns because a business that i've worked for 25 years to create is non-existent at the moment i've got 11 brilliant staff who've been loyal and worked with me some of them for 15 20 years they're all furloughed and that just feels so desperate and i feel as if i'm letting them down yeah i mean i think you're definitely not alone but i i just sort of feel for you I, you know listening to you and looking at your website and looking at the amazing things that you create to not have those to create, do you feel sort of a, a a creative loss? I mean, how are you using that energy at the moment? I love to cook. And one of the most enjoyable things ever for me is finding a group of friends, putting them around my table and spending time with them, creating really lovely food that I enjoy building and creating and sharing with them. So... That's my relaxation normally, and my creative output is my work and also my cooking. So at the moment, it's my gardening, my cooking. I'm doing some writing. I'm working on another book. Um, but yes, I really miss being amongst flowers. I miss being in the flower market, buying the flowers. Um, 
I miss every aspect, all the amazing venues we work in, the incredible event professionals that I work alongside, all of them I've known for 20 odd years and none of them I'm seeing now. And it's tough. Yeah. Your book must be comfort to you. Your wonderful book, The Flower Market Year. You've been reading extracts and I was listening to some last night and you're so lovely at reading them out. It's, it took me back to Jack and Nori as a kid and I thought, oh gosh, you need to do more of this. It was really brilliantly done. But you must be pleased that you've done that and you've got that, you know, in your back pocket and it's something you can talk to people about and it sort of catalogues what you do. Um, I mean, I was thrilled with the extract you read about the... Um, the day before Prince Charles's wedding when they put all the heating on at um, Windsor and you must have been sort of freaking out. And I just I just love that you've shared all those little details. Um, but what was the sort of thought behind creating that book? What was your aim when you sat down to do that? The original driver for it was the fact that I for I came to London when I was 20 and it was in October in when I was 20 years old and I was taken to New Covent Garden Flower Market and I can still now remember it, I can smell it, I can see it. It was so visceral to me and that building I have known since I was 20 and I'm now 53. Well, it was demolished um, to make way for a newer, more efficient flower market. But I just thought this iconic building that has existed since the 70s is going to go and we'll lose it. So my original idea was to put a photographer in and to photograph the building and the flowers and the people. And then I thought, well, why don't we do it across a year? Every I, This was the flower market year is the sixth book that I've written and it's all the others have been my exercises in prostitution in a way because you get asked to do them, you get paid to do some of it and then you have no choice in what the title is, you have no choice in what the cover is, you know what it's like. Big publishing companies do tend to take over your baby um, but I have loved the process of it, working with a photographer that I've worked with a fair bit, Michelle Garrett and so she's very quiet, very discreet and gradually the guys in the market didn't notice her anymore, which was what I wanted. So each month she would go in two or three days quietly. Sometimes I would be there, so she would photograph me with the people I was buying from, sometimes just me buying what flowers I was looking at and buying, sometimes just the guys and girls there. And then she would come back to the workroom and we would photograph what I was creating. And every other book I've done, Photography's had to be squished into six days or two weeks and you've ended up doing Christmas in June with a dangly young tipped Christmas tree that just doesn't look right. You've had to find out of season tulips that look strained. So I wanted to do something that was actually real and of the moment and it took a year to photograph. In fact, it took 13 months because we overlapped to make sure we'd got each month to start and end with. Um, and then, oh my goodness, the wealth of photographs we had. And then the joy for me was I was doing some work in America and I quite like on a plane, I don't like to just sit and hoover up the food and booze and sleep. 
I think for me, it's one of the most enjoyable things on a long haul flight is that I can sit and get six, eight, 10, 12 hours of undisturbed work done and I really can get into a zone. So I sat and wrote most of it on a few flights back and forth from looking at the photos, reminding myself what I was doing and what I was feeling, looking at my diaries to see what I'd been up to. So it really is exactly a catalogue of me, my life, the flower market and what was happening. And it feels like the first truest book I wrote. And so I enjoy reading bits of it. And what's quite funny is I almost don't need to look at the page because it comes straight back to my tiny mind and I can remember and repeat the words. But I think the timing is great because, you know, you have written a very honest book. As people are getting to know you through Instagram, people that may not have particular interest in you know flower arranging so it's it's great I think you're really broadening people's view of the career but I think what I've picked up from the extracts I've listened to is I mean I just could not cope with the stress that you must be under create I mean I just take my hat off to you creating um those amazing displays for for really I mean, things like Prince Charles and Camilla's wedding. How do you cope with that? Because it's it's almost bigger than Chelsea Flower Show because there's going to be so many eyes on it. And I don't know. I just don't know. how. What's your mechanism for coping with that? Um, I've always, everything I do, I have to love. And everything I create, it may not be my choice of colour or style or flower in particular, but it, for me to have created it, made it and put it out there, it has to truly be a bit of me. And that might just be the fact that it's so ridiculous and over the top or it's a ridiculously clashing combination of colours or a soft, gentle, planterly, painterly theme. Um, it needs to look abundant. It needs to look polished, finished and innovative and original. And it needs to fit the scale of the space. If anything and everything I do works within those criteria I feel I've done my job so whether it's for crowned heads of the world whether it's for real royalty or footballing royalty whether it's for regular people that just want something special for an extraordinary occasion in their lives I would like to think that I work in the same way for all of them and the pressure is on for every event that we do um and in a way, I quite thrive on that. I love the fact that we know we've only got four hours. It's a finite window to install it. It has to look amazing for another four hours. And then you go in and take it all away. So in a way, we create these little dreams, these moments in everybody's lives. And then afterwards, they're gone. But you have these incredible, overwhelming memories of walking into rooms that you thought you were familiar with that suddenly can look so different purely from some flowers. Yeah. So you get to know your venues, I suppose. So if someone says, I'm using Hampton Court, um, you've done things at, at the Tate, haven't you? And, you know, is, is there a venue that you you just think, yes, I love doing that venue. I love creating a, a, a magical world there. Well, there are two, really. One of them is... Um... And it sounds so name droppy to say it, but there's a, the Malachi Turn in Windsor Castle is vast. It's about three metres tall and nobody's really allowed to do anything other than look at it these days. But for 
royal occasions, you're allowed to create arrangements in it. Back in the pre-health and safety days for the wedding of the Prince of Wales to the Duchess of Cornwall, it was wonderful because we were able to do what we wanted, created this vast structure in it using all beautiful branches of magnolia and blossom from the Savile Gardens and from Windsor Great Park. And now people are a little bit more health and safety conscious, so they slightly limit the height we can go to. But it always thrills me to create within it and walking around Windsor Castle with Her Majesty the Queen just before the wedding of um, Princess Beatrice to Jack Brooks Banks. She was walking around looking at the flowers. We were fortunate enough to be with her. And um, she said, oh, it's so lovely to see somebody using the urn. And it just moments like that are just extraordinary to have the Queen tell you that she's thrilled you're arranging in one of her vases. That is a unique and amazing experience. Um, and then the other one is somewhere like either Hampton Court Palace or the Banqueting House on Whitehall, which are vast, iconic, incredible buildings. And you are you're creating flowers in a room where Henry VIII entertained his wives. You're creating flowers beneath a ceiling that... Charles I commissioned in his pleasure palace where he had a drink, James I had a drinking den where kings had their heads lopped off. And you're in there now arranging flowers and quite often you can be in there. There might be a moment when you're in these spaces totally alone, creating the flowers when the public have gone before the guests arrive. And that you couldn't ever, that for me is just unbelievably exciting. It sounds it. And it's lovely that you actually take that on. You know, you're the sort of person that feels the space. And I think that is probably why your work is so magical, because, you know, connecting with a space is obviously quite important. So you've got to connect with the space. You've got to connect with the client. So a lot of your work is about people, isn't it? It is, and I love people. It's really funny. I'm hugely shy, although nobody ever believes me when I say that. The idea of going, the, uh, the, the idea of going to a drinks reception where I know nobody fills me with horror and dread. So then I paint on the Simon smile, and I go in, and I can be big and jazz handsy and hello, and that's fine. And then I get to know people, and then they get to know me, and that's when it really the loveliness happens, the magic happens when you make those connections. And how weird that I've read your book, I follow you on Instagram. I was recommended your book because somebody told me it was written with the same voice that they felt my book was written with. I think it's just an honest, like you, I didn't have a publisher telling me what I could and couldn't say. It's my book. And when I got that message from you saying you enjoyed my book, it made my day. I was like, whoa, fantastic. Well, I was, what I loved about your book was it's just, it's very, you're very real. It's your, there's no um, fancy fannying about and sort of making it all seem special and perfect and magical and everything's grown in a perfect pot and nothing's attacked by a slug and nothing fails and it's all just beautiful and gorgeous. The fact that you'd had such a hot day in one of the polytunnels that you came home and mowed the lawn in your underwear, that you then told us that, it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant because that's life and that's what everybody does and I think if we're able to connect with one another and just be real it just makes everything seem so much more understandable and enjoyable and I don't really care about 
the grand elements in people's lives. The moment I flick through somebody's Instagram feed and it's just endless perfection and loveliness, I just think, yeah, but come on, it, it isn't like that. And how disingenuous. And actually, nobody has fabulous days every day. We all have a day from time to time. You know, life is blooming hard. And at the moment, it's particularly tough. So why can't we just show what life is really like to people? Because actually, isn't that just the way that we get to know and be amongst people that we are similar to? Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. Hopefully, going forward, people will be more honest. But it must be quite hard for you because obviously you're the go-to man for celebrities, for people that live that Instagram life. And I'm sure a lot of people want your flowers because they want to splash it everywhere. We've, we've had this amazing event. Do you ever sort of think, I don't want to work for that person? Or, you know, do you have to have a connection with the person? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to name names, but... Is it quite, is it, because it is quite a personal thing, isn't it? It is, but I am a prostitute. Alan Titchmarsh years ago said I was his floral prostitute because I would do what anybody paid me to do. And within reason, I will. Um, so occasionally, and you know, I have a big empire. I have umpteen railway arches. I have a team of 11. The overheads are vast. So occasionally I just let total commerce take over. And if there's somebody I simply cannot abide, I now these days, well, I used to before we went into lockdown, I would occasionally manage to manipulate it so that I might not be available for that event. But on the whole, yeah, there needs to be a level of connection. And also I'm now confident enough that I will fight my corner with my client and we can have some quite heated conversations I wouldn't say arguments but conversations about it um, and in the end if I consider that what they want is what they want and that it will still look incredible it might not be what I feel is right for them or for the venue I will probably do it because it's work yeah yeah well reality um, there's one picture on your website is uh, if I'm seeing it right it's delphiniums hanging upside down that is spectacular. I mean, how do you must go to to bed with this sort of Alice in Wonderland dream hat on and come up with these things? But what what I really want to know is what's the process? Do you sit down and actually physically draw the ideas, or do you have a team that you can just say, right, this is what I'm thinking? What what's the sort of process to get to something so incredible? I'm really incapable of drawing. I can do a terrible scribble. I'm an okay florist, but I'm a terrible drawer. Um, and usually I will, I'll have a meeting with a client within a venue. The particular event you're talking about was a private lunch party for a gentleman's 40th. Um, and it was in the Orangery at Kensington Palace, which is a, it's like standing inside the most amazing 1970s wedding cake. It's all fab fabulous, fragile white plaster work and very matte and just the most incredible light filled space. And so it's vast. You also only have a very finite time to do anything in there. The man whose party it was, he want, his wife was organising it and they needed it to be an absolute, what I would call a f-off factor. Yeah. So you needed to walk in to just be like, oh my God. But also in a 
relatively unfussy, non-wedding-y way. It was delphinium time. They were nearly all British delphinium that we used. It was at the time when all those different shades of blues through to purples were happening. And so I created... In my mind, I decided I wanted to use delphinium because blue is such a great colour against white. It's a great colour in daylight. It's a brilliant colour for gentlemen's events. So you can go from dark and rich through to the softer, paler, more gentle tones and shades. He'd wanted to have mirror tables for some random reason. So I thought, well, if we could reflect in the tables, he wanted to have quite a lot of stellar um, cabaret artists so we needed to have clear sight lines so there needed to be height with a clear no restriction in the centre of the table I'm waving my arms here as I'm describing it so as I drove away from the meeting I was thinking it has to be delphinium and then I was thinking oh but there's nothing you know just a vast thing of delphinium as if they're growing is great but let's do them in the ceiling so then I was thinking okay we could do that but we've only got four hours to do it so how do we do it so we did literally have to build each of those designs next door to each table and then lift them onto the tables and we had to do 16 of them in four hours um, so it was quite a tight logistical challenge which all of my team they hang their heads when I go in and suggest things but we always make a prototype of everything so it's at that point that we we work out the pitfalls and the issues and we created a, a, a prototype that we all immediately adored. And I'm so lucky. My team are brilliant. They've been with me, a lot of them, for a very long time. And there's a process of osmosis. So I describe it. Then we do a bit of it. I then walk away. They do the rest of it. I come back. We tweak it. We fall in love with it or not. We then have the client come and hopefully fall in love with it or not. We tweak it again. And then the job's done. Yeah. Um, you're... Uh, location with the arches is that a good I mean I'm just thinking that would be quite cool isn't it is it quite good for flowers well it's quite hard it's what's joyous about it is the location we're in what I always describe as sunny Camberwell and it's a series of four railway arches three are conjoined so we have a sort of what I grandly call an atrium which is a huge vast lean-to you could drive a van into um, so we do get a bit of daylight because there are some roofs on the lean-to um, and also the offices are in a box that protrudes beyond the other end of the arch so the offices also get a bit of daylight through a skylight but they are Victorian railway arches arches that laughingly I refer to as Lysett Towers because there's nothing tower-like about them. They're virtually subterranean. They're always cold and damp, um, which is perfect for flowers. It's not so great for florists, um, but they're high and they're big and they're roomy and I have a lot of stuff and they're perfect for that. And also it's only 25 minutes drive into town to the fabulous venues we work in. Yeah, which is key, isn't it, for you is being in, in London now, talking about time restrictions and um, being under pressure and stuff, I've been watching um, the big, the Netflix Big Flower Fight. And uh, gosh, you know, that really does demonstrate the pressure and, and show how hard it is to do what you do, actually. And uh, it was lovely to see you as a guest judge, I think, in the second episode. But I was thinking last night that um, they've got 15 hours. So what you must have been there as a judge for hours hanging around. What time did they start creating? Um, 
It was actually filmed last August during that amazing heat wave. It was in Ke- in Kent, um, relatively near Tunbridge Wells. We're not allowed to say where, secret location. Yeah. Um, and they built this incredible biodome, which in, then, of course, they suddenly realised became really hot because it was like flower arranging in a vast hothouse. Um, and the weather was exceptionally warm and still. And I had been asked to be involved with the project very early on. And then they had made some changes. Netflix had made some changes to the format. So then I wasn't involved with the project. Um, So I had been asked initially, would I consider it? And I said, yes. And And they said, we're thinking of filming in August when everybody's quiet. And I said, ah, there's your first problem. Because in August, when everybody's quiet, I head to the Highlands. So my husband's family have a house on the west coast of Scotland. And like Her Majesty the Queen, I head north of the border during the summer months. And I'm really lucky because my husband's in education, I get to get school holidays. And August is always really quiet for event florists in London. So I go away for between four and six weeks, which is really lucky and sounds really greedy. But I work a seven day week the rest of the year. So I feel I deserve it. Um, so I headed off to Scotland. So I had said to them, oh, if you're filming in August, I wouldn't be around. But when it had been for a major element of it, I thought, okay, I could do that, especially if the money's right. Um, And then when they decided that they were using a different team, I I said, okay, fine, and I'm off out of here. And then suddenly I, I got a call saying, we'd now like to have a guest judge each week and we'd like you. And I said, okay, when? So they told me the dates and I said, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm in Scotland. And they said, would you consider coming back? And I said, I'm really sorry. No, I said, it takes 11 hours to drive there. It's the middle of nowhere. The joy is there's no mobile signal. There's no Wi-Fi. It's on the edge of a sea lock and everything comes off. I look like the wild man of the West because I don't shave. I don't wash. I don't brush my hair. We have picnics on the beach every day. We garden. We sit in a heap in the rain, in the sun. It's just a really beautiful downtime. I'm not going to break that. I don't break that for anyone. Um, They persisted. They persisted. In the end, my fabulous agent became involved. So negotiations happened. And I did reference earlier that I am a prostitute. I can be bought. Um, So they sent a car and a driver to the door. The car and the driver drove me to Glasgow. They put me on a plane. They flew me down. I then had half a day with my barber trying to make me look like I normally look. Um, I then went to Tunbridge Wells where it was so hot people didn't... I let, bearing in mind I'd left the West Coast in the rain. I arrived in Tunbridge Wells where it was so hot we didn't know what to do with ourselves. We filmed for the first day, then it rained, and then it rained unrelentingly for the next two days. I was there for three days, two of which it was cold, wet and rainy, but the fabulousness of film and TV is you never need to know what the weather's doing because they have these lovely lights. And it was the most extraordinary, uplifting and joyous time to be amongst such a group of amazing creatives and such incredible characters. I loved it. No, it was really good fun. And I was really interested, you know, my husband and teenage son are not particularly keen on mummy's gardening programs, but they sat and they watched the whole thing. You know, I didn't say, what are you still doing here? I think it's got that sort of bake-off vibe. It's not so threatening that you think, oh, I don't know what that flower is. It doesn't matter. It was, it was fun. It was really, really good. So I was glad to see you on that. So what about 
you know, other TV projects because you look so comfortable. I'm sure it's not as easy as it looks, but you look comfortable on the television. Is it? Is there anything else we can look forward to? Well, I've, I, for years I've done bits and pieces. So I've, I used to cut my teeth on all those sort of breakfast television and early satellite TV programmes. I would be a bit of daytime TV relief, so Simon would turn up and wave some flowers around for a while. Um, and so I've done it for a while and I enjoy it. I'm a bit of a show off, even though I'm quite shy. Um, the cut, the sort of contrast of that. And also I do know my craft. I'm very confident with flowers, with flower arranging, with floristry, with all the techniques required. Um, and I am passionate about encouraging others to do it and to try and slightly demystify elements of it and to say to people, yeah, of course, what I've made looks amazing. I had an incredible budget of vast quantities of flowers, but everybody is able to create something that will look beautiful. And it it's not rocket science. So any offer I get, I will consider. Um, and so it was lovely to work for the RHS on a little strand of film for their virtual Chelsea coverage this year which I had to self-film in my garden and then self-edit, which was quite challenging. I mean, one of my lockdown learning projects was to teach myself to edit and I'm getting there, but oh golly, it's, I definitely am much more comfortable in front of a camera than behind it doing technical stuff. But I am, um, I was just as we went into lockdown, I was actually in Los Angeles uh, filming a TV competition for HBO Max. And what's really exciting is I'm the judge and I'm the host. Um, so there are three judges. I'm the one of the three judges, but I'm the host of it. And we filmed two and a half episodes before lockdown happened. And honestly, I was living my best, happiest working life. It was just so fabulous. And I utterly, utterly adored every single minute. So that will that will happen at some point. That will continue. It will continue. We we don't know quite how. I mean, who knows? How's anybody going to fly across the world anymore? Um, will I have to be in a little oxygen tent on my own? Who knows? But yeah, I will. I need to get back. I was about to be locked down in a hotel in Los Angeles, and thankfully they got me on the last plane out of of LA. Otherwise, I might still be there now, which would be quite challenging. I think. You'd be doing live. Live Instagram chats from your hotel room, probably bouncing off the walls, going, get me out. But, yeah. Give me some greenery. Give me some reality, yes. Crikey. I mean, that is, it is disappointing. Um, there's so many people have had disappointments like that. But I think it's, uh, it's remarkable how well people have taken disappointments like that. Because, I mean, this, that could be career changing for you. And you're sort of sitting on, it's like you've ridden the wave, you're right at the top of it, and then it, you know, it's stopped. But I'm sure it will appear again, hopefully. So how did you get to be a florist? I mean, um, you've obviously had a passion for, for this for many, many years. But, you know, how did you sort of leave school and think, right, this is for me, what training did you do? Because at the time, was it quite unusual for, for a man to, to want to be a florist? Well, let me paint a little picture for you. So I was born in Warwick, where my parents still live, and I was born in 1966. So by the time I was seven, all I wanted to do was work with flowers and plants and be in a garden and grow 
and make things, little miniature gardens and saucer poses. The two spinster ladies that lived next door, but one to my parents were avid gardeners and I would pop into, they'd been school teachers. So I would pop into them on my way home from school. I would always go and see them. And they became almost sort of adopted grannies, aunties, and they nurtured me and encouraged me. And they had they had a greenhouse, which we didn't have. They had a garden full of all sorts of amazing things. And my dad was an incredible engineer. My mum's an amazing seamstress. But And they had gardens that they enjoyed, but they weren't passionate gardeners or growers. And I just adored it. At the age of seven, I went to an RHS-affiliated flower show in Warwick and was utterly captivated. So from the age of seven, all I've ever wanted to do is work with flowers and work with plants and be amongst flowers. And at the age of nine, ten, I started helping out a neighbour of my parents who was called Norma, who still lives next door but two. And she used to teach City and Guilds floristry so and used to do weddings for friends and family. So I would go and sit helping her in inverted commas. And I learned from her all the techniques of wiring, all the old-fashioned traditional floristry techniques. And my dad, my parents aren't great praisers. Um, and I remember overhearing my dad one day when I was about 14 or 15 saying... It's really funny. You can tell which arrangement Simon's done because they're nicer than Norma's now, which was a really odd thing for him to say. And he would have been mortified if he'd known I'd heard it. But he just it it, it was an instinctive thing that I was able to do. So it has always felt very natural. So I felt very confident and very relaxed doing it. What was unfortunate was I was at school at an all boys school through the 70s and 80s, when it would now be called bullying. Back then, it was just name-calling. So I was always name-called, you know, the sissy boy that, aged 14, 15, preferred to do flowers than playing rugby. The school weren't supportive. That was the what it was like. The, the staff were as bullying as the other pupils. I was always name-called queer and poof and kisses blown at me as I walked around. Um... The school has changed hugely since and I have returned to the school and actually it thrilled me to present prizes at the speech day. I was invited back by a, a much more progressive group of heads and staff. Um, and that actually was a massive thing. And to go back to the school was really quite challenging because I had had such a hideous time there for quite a lot of the time. Um and yet I thought I've got to go back because there will be a few boys there that are feeling the way I would feel and had felt. Um, although not so much. It seems boys are much more empathetic and open to anybody being individual and having all sorts of character traits that would have been considered totally wrong and totally abnormal. Um, and actually, it was one of the most uplifting and enjoyable eye-opening experiences I've had. So it was great to go back. But I've always known, and at about 15, 16, there was an amazing, there is an amazing flower arranger called George Smith, who's part of the NAFAS, National Association of Flower Arrangement Societies organization. And he took me under his wing and he recommended I worked for, went to London to work for a florist. So age 20, having done one year of a humanities degree and knowing I didn't want to do any more, my parents agreed and I went 
to live in London and worked for a man called Robert Day, who was a florist. It was the 80s. Lady Di used to buy her knickers in the shop opposite. <laughs> it was the conspicuous... <laughs> it was conspicuous consumerism when people thought nothing of spending £500 on a flower arrangement to say, looking forward to having lunch with you or thank you for dinner last night. Um, and for a boy coming from Warwick to suddenly be dropped into this world, it was utterly eye-opening and amazing. I was only paid 80 quid a week. I was able to stay with fabulous friends of the family in Orpington and I would commute up and down and then eventually I ended up living in London and that was when I was 20 and I thought I'd do it for six months and I'm 53 and I've yet to get back to Warwick and do some flowers there. Yeah, I mean... But it just shows that it's it's experience, isn't it? It's actually hands-on, having a go, which is what's so wonderful about you is that you're keen to share that with people. So don't be scared of like trying to make a floral crown. And it, it's such uh, so important, isn't it, to make those mistakes and, and learn from people. But how has floristry... I mean, I... I Last year after Chelsea, I walked around Chelsea and they've got those amazing displays. Wow. I did I did a podcast actually from there. And I was just overwhelmed with the skill and and actually the environmental way in which people were using the flowers. So they weren't using foam, they're lots using lots of jam jars, chicken wire and things like that. Have you noticed have you have you had to change the way you work? It's It's been quite interesting watching the trajectory of the no floral foam movement, which basically, for anybody that doesn't really understand the techniques of flower arranging, there are a few. You can cut flowers and plonk them in a vase. Um, you can use little fiddly bits of um, wire and chicken wire. You can make a wigwam of twigs, all of which support your arrangements. The old school techniques are things like a pin holder, which is like a tiny bed of nails, or damp sand, moss, and scrunkled up balls of chicken wire are what Constance Spry used. They're what our grannies used. If you go into your granny's flower cupboard, there'll be a vase with a bit of old chicken wire rusting yeah. at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, those were the techniques we all used. When I worked in London for Robert Day in 1981, he did not have a single block of flower foam in his shop. We used chicken wire and moss and water. Um, and then this flower foam arrived, these bricks of green that are sold under a few brand names, the most common of which is Oasis. And everybody was excited because it meant we were able to achieve all sorts of things that we couldn't have done before. And this solid sponge that holds loads of water allows you to stick flowers into it and hang them upside down, up the wall. You can create a wreath very quickly. So for a lot of people, commercially, it makes incredible sense. However, as the world has evolved, we've all become much more aware about microplastics, about pollution, about our environmental footprint, sustainability. And despite their best efforts, Smithers Oasis are still unable to create a biodegradable flower foam. Even biodegradable flower foam that is sold only biodegrades under optimum conditions and only to a certain extent, and it still degrades to form microparticles of plastic which get into the water source. So where possible, we try 
if we can, to avoid using it. When I say we, I mean me, the company. Some of the venues I work in, such as the historic royal palaces, don't allow flowers in standing water. So for some parties, we create arrangements and then we tip the water out of the vase and they go in without water in the vase because they don't need to have water for a few hours. Other, event, other events, we use damp moss. We try and get around it, but we still have to use flower foam sometimes. Other florists are passionate about not using it. However, for one-man band florists in busy flower shops in areas where there aren't huge budgets, you can still make something quickly that's beautiful, that your client loves, and you're using flower foam and not too many flowers, and it's commercially an option. And so I cannot decry anybody for that because we all need to earn a living. However, some people are incredibly evangelical about it, and I do get quite... I don't know what language levels we're allowed to use on this podcast. I've already sworn a couple of times, so I'm just going to say it. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a real school of what I call the wafty wank on floristry feeds on Instagram and social media at the moment, which is if I see too many more feeds of very curated arrangements in a vintage vase and a ramshackle jam jar a beautiful vintage decanter with its stopper missing and there'll be a cafe au lait dahlia. There will be two stems of sanguisorba, an aquilegia, a peony, a bit of a stilbia strantia, a trail of old man's beard. All of these exceedingly beautiful but deeply curated images that someone has taken six hours to style and post are what people think floristry is now and it bloody well isn't because if you work in warwick in a flower shop someone will come in and have nine pound fifty to spend on flowers that they want to take to a friend or they will have 28 quid that they want to create an arrangement for you to deliver four miles away and so for a lot of people working on a day-to-day -day basis, that is n bears no relevance on what floristry actually is. What I do is not what floristry actually is. I showcase a window into a world of fantasy and fabulous and ridiculous and beautiful. And so there are loads of different departments and directions of floristry. And I'm excited to now be on the RHS Indoor Flower and Cut Plant Advisory Group because we are looking at the floristry offering within RHS shows because what I do isn't floristry, what the RHS showcase currently in shows isn't floristry, what's on those wafty Instagram feeds isn't floristry. The love child of all of them is truly what floristry is and it's what goes on at grassroots and it's what goes on all over the world. And what I want to try and do is boil it all down so that ultimately there is something that does represent something that becomes aspirational and beautiful, but also has an element of being something that would resonate with my mum and dad, would connect to someone who lives on the 18th floor of a tower block in the north and who occasionally can go and treat themselves to a bunch of flowers from the flower stall up the road but would never be a cafe au lait dahlia mm. so it's trying to get elements of realism within what could if we're not careful just spiral away into a silly candy land of fantasy yeah i mean it's a fascinating world floristry i mean i know 
people that grow flowers in the UK and they are creating those sort of romantic scenes. I also have a wonderful friend who's a Chelsea Flower Show gold medal florist and she's into the wiring and just does... You know, there's so many different ways and I think it's a bit like cooking, isn't it? I mean, you've got Jamie Oliver doing 30-minute recipes and then you've got people creating things with steam coming off it and, you know, it it's just a huge industry that one foot, one boot doesn't fit all, does it? It's just, that's what's so wonderful about it. It is what's so wonderful about it, but I worry that if we're not careful, we make it seem, I think for any new young florist that's working on a floristry course, I get approached by loads and loads of youngsters on floristry courses where they only have six pounds worth of flowers to work with on a project. They're never going to have access to all that stuff that looks so amazing and so incredible on Instagram feeds. But that's not real floristry. That's curated and it's fake. And I just... I get really upset about it because we need to show a bit. As we were talking about earlier, we need to be more real. We need to be more true and more genuine and more honest. So sometimes we have a few flowers and we might have a really lovely vase. And other times we have loads of flowers and an amazing venue. But just occasionally we only have a couple of flowers and they can still be just as beautiful. And a bunch of shop-bought chrysanthemums can be just as lovely to people as a few stems of scented pelagonium and a little sweet pea or two that you've gathered from the garden. It's If the only flower you've got is the only flower you've got, it's still bloody lovely. Yeah. Oh, well, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Um, it's you're, You are an inspiration. And I think, you know, I want to thank you for your energy throughout this lockdown um, because it's not easy, as we said earlier, you know, it is, it is a really challenging time. But I think although you're not working in the same way that you have been, you have been working hard for your industry, spreading the word. So thank you, Simon. And I hope we get to meet in person at some point. I, I feel very guilty that I feel I intimately know your garden. I am getting to know you really well. And so I'm loving, loving the fact that you're doing gorgeous video tours of your gardens. And But I feel as if I break in when you're not there and sneak over the fence or I've come on days I know you're not there because I want to see you and have a hug and stand getting hot with you in the hothouse and do all of those things and dig up one of your uncle's delicious beetroot and all of those things. So, yeah, I can't wait to get out of lockdown and have a hug with you when we're both hot and sweaty and probably in our undergarments. Yes, exactly. Sounds gorgeous. <laughs> well, thank you, Simon. And uh, take thank care. You. Thank you for joining me. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, I'm just absolutely thrilled to have had that conversation with Simon. Um, he just doesn't disappoint. Every time you listen to him, he fills you with joy and enthusiasm for flowers and plants and growing. So um, I hope that we see more of him on our televisions. I hope he creates more books and continues to embrace us all and just bring so much joy into the lives of people that appreciate flowers and gardens. So until next time, carry on gardening.
Pod is presented by me, Tamsin Westhorpe, and produced by Candide in their plant-filled Bristol office. Candide is a free plant and gardening app with a helpful community of plant lovers, interesting articles and great tools like plant identification and garden tours. Ask a question in the app with the hashtag FreshFromThePod and I'll choose my favourite to answer later in the series. And if you enjoyed Fresh From The Pod, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share it on Reddit and talk about it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe.